Hello, everybody. It's Tony Moore with Winning at Work. This is episode 79. And if you're listening to this episode and you've not listened to episode 78 with Matt Prindeville, stop. I want you to go back, listen to Matt Prindeville, the CEO and chief solutioner at Upstream. And then come back and listen to this episode because this is the follow-on episode. It just so happens that I've interviewed the CEO of Dishcraft Robotics. And this is, it's AI that's come to the world of food and beverage, but specifically into the world of the service reuse company. And I, I have waited like I did with Matt, well over a month to introduce this episode to the world. I met Linda Poulot. She's the CEO and she's the founder of Dishcraft Robotics. After I talked to Matt Prindeville at Upstream, he mentioned that there were some companies that were innovating and pioneering this new technology in California. And that's when I found Linda. And she agreed to come on to the podcast and really outline for us, hands-on, practically speaking, what that world is going to look like and the infrastructure that's going to be needed to create this new service reuse world, this new infrastructure, this new ecosystem. And yes, she is a bit of a serial entrepreneur, and she went through some uh, kind of life moments when she realized this is what her calling was. And they've got a, a huge purpose, a mission. As you know, if your company has a purpose, has a mission, you are going to win when it comes to the, the war on talent. And she is definitely doing that now. And Dishcraft Robotics, they are limited right now just to the Bay Area, but they've had a huge demand from other areas. And she kind of hinted that they are expanding and we'll have to wait and see what happens in 2022. But it looks like this will expand. And I just, I was so blown away at how this, it just makes so much sense to provide an organization the means by which to have a reuse environment to do away with disposable foodware. And that is her biggest competitor, make no mistake. But the math is out there. The truth is out there on her side. And anyone who wants to launch a business into the service reuse space, reuse wins every time. And she's going to explain a little bit of the math, a little bit of the science, a little bit of the AI, some of the challenges that they're having in this space that's really keeping it from expanding much faster. Uh, the problem of reverse logistics, she's going to get into that. Guys, this is where the future of food is going, and you're hearing it here on the Winning at Work podcast. And so if this is your first time kind of getting used to kind of figuring out what we're doing here on the podcast, this is a learning and development podcast. It's, it's bringing all the best food and beverage executives to the forefront, sharing their ideas. How do they win at work? How is it that they're succeeding we take that knowledge, we bring it back to our daily lives, and we get better, our companies get better, and we progress. That's what this is all about. And Winning at Work, the podcast, has been recognized as one of the top learning and development podcasts on the Internet. That's fantastic. I'm grateful for that. And it's just 
goes to show the quality content that these executives are bringing to us each and every week. And I have been publishing a lot more, a lot more often because I've had a lot more guests that have wanted to come on. I also reach out to people and all they do is they look at my lineup of different guests and they say, wow, I want to be on this program. Look at the people that have gone before me. And I've even had some uh, SVPs, you know, come on with me on a little pre-call and say, gosh, you know, you've had some really, really good guests. You know, are you sure you want me? And the answer is typically yes. The answer is typically yes. Don't let your, um, don't let the little voice in your head say you don't have something good to offer. You do. You absolutely do. And I'm good at pulling that out of people and getting those stories out and getting those stories told. Because there is a lot happening in food brands. There's a lot happening in restaurants. There's a lot happening in the, in the war for talent and labor and all the new changes that are happening. We need to solve those problems. But at the same time, we need to highlight and emphasize the companies that are out there that are doing the right thing so we can put our money and our dollar and our energy behind these companies. And frankly, you know, if you're in the job market, these are the kind of companies you want to work for. I mean, when you listen to the quality of thought, the ideas they have for management and leadership. I mean, don't you just want to work for them? I mean, it, the, the, the good news and the bad news is the good news is you get exposed to these great people. The bad news is you kind of look around your own company and go, man, we've got a way to go. So that's the, the double-edged sword of having great minds on that show the path forward. You tend to see the gap as to where you are, but hopefully this gives you some practical steps, how to move forward, how to make your company better, how you can lead better, and also manage up. That's a big part of learning and development, taking these new ideas. How do you push up? How do you practically implement a lot of these ideas? So we're not going to solve all that on one podcast. And technically, that's not really part of this podcast today. It is, um, it's touched on. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to touch on that. So Guys, enjoy, and I'm so thrilled to introduce to the world of food and beverage, Dishcraft Robotics, and Linda Pulo. Enjoy. I, I can't tell you, honestly, I have really been waiting for such a long time to talk to you, Linda, because it seems like everyone I'm talking to now in the CPG world, restaurants, um, even people in the plant-based food space, everyone's talking about sustainability and, of course, the topic of you know single use continues to come up. So I am just super psyched to you know introduce everybody to you and have everyone hear about this totally cool company you've started. I mean, who in the world would have thought of you know robotic dishwashing? It's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. So why don't we just get started? Great. So Linda, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're a serial entrepreneur. Tell us, you know, tell the listeners a little bit of your backstory. I actually went to school for fine arts to study painting and right out of school, got a job in operations. Uh, and what was interesting was I just really liked getting things made. And so I ended up working for a company that was getting items made for companies like Banana Republic and all the museums. So anything from, you know, an umbrella to a clock. And so I really learned how things got constructed, designed, and fulfilled. 
And then in 2004, I really wanted to start my own company. And so I moved out to Silicon Valley and I met an entrepreneur who said he was going to build a robot company. And I said, look, I know nothing about hardware, but I do know how to get things manufactured because I had all these deep relationships with, with Asia and around the country in the U.S. And so we started a company called Nido Robotics Together that was an autonomous floor cleaning robot for consumers. It was called Nido. It ended up being, you know, quite large in the space. It was number two at one point. And then that company was acquired and someone from the restaurant industry reached out to me and he said, look, I understand that you, you know a lot about cleaning and robots because you did floors. This is a totally different problem I have. It's in the restaurant space, but could you develop something that could help us have very consistent results and solve some of the challenges we're having across? They had 22 stores at the time. And I was just so interested because I was in between things. So I, <laughs> like you love learning, like you love finding a problem that a customer brings to you. And so I just started working in a whole bunch of different places, like a casino and a pub and a school cafeteria and a corporate campus. And everyone universally was saying, hey, dishwashing is really a problem for us <laughs> for a variety of reasons. It was just hard to obtain labor. The churn was really high. And I was so intrigued that I started calling engineers I knew. And I said, can, you know, can we actually solve this? Because it feels like from my work that, that if you broke it up into enough small steps that you could do it and it was a, a massive market. So is that how you think kind of like small steps? That's just kind of interesting the way you broke it down. Yeah. I think any, when you start a business, you're often, it's, it's almost like driving in the rain and you don't, you know where your destination is, but you can't actually see how to get there. And so if you break it into, okay, well, you know, I can get to a mile and then the next mile and then the next mile, I think that's often leads to success. And that's how we looked at dishwashing because it is really a complex task and we didn't want to try to do everything at once. And so very much with Dishcraft, it was what problem can we solve today, even if it's a small chunk of the whole and we started there. And so that's why we focused initially on corporate campuses because they had fewer items they needed to wash and they were much more consistent. We have a long-term goal of being able to handle anything a restaurant needs, but we're not there yet. Because if you think about a restaurant, they have dozens of different types of plates and often dozens of different types of glasses. And so it's just, let's take baby steps with the goal, as long as you know where you're going to, you can create a path to get there. So it's like you're starting with a smaller business case, if you will, fine-tuning, making sure it works, it's profitable, and then you just chunk on the next problem. Then you chunk on the next problem, and soon you've got the whole automated robotic system to handle it all. But right now, you have to start with something, right? You couldn't build a you know, that complex of a mousetrap. Well, let's okay. But go back. Tell us, um, I, I don't want to move so far beyond into our conversation, but I, I really want people to understand more about Dishcraft Robotics. Please tell us more about the company, um, a little bit about the culture and, and what your vision is, because this is to me, what is so fascinating is that you're solving 
not just di- the, the problem of dishwashing, but you're also solving some other my transcendental issues that people have been feeling in our throwaway society. We've always been really po- people focused. We wanted to solve real problems with the technology. When we started, it was to solve this one particular issue that someone had in a in his restaurant. But what we learned is there's a much bigger world of waste. We were always sustainability minded in terms of when we built our equipment, we were recirculating cold water to save on the amount of water used and power. But what we learned when we explored the world of dishwashing is our real competitor, frankly, is disposable foodware. And we knew that if you provided enough locations with a alternative, which we believe is reuse and it will win every time to the disposables, that then you can have a massive impact on the world. So culturally at Dishcraft, you know, we started with a whole bunch of values of respect, communication, being of service, being bold, and we added being sustainable. And so every day we sort of drive that within the people that we hire and within the customers that we engage with. I would say we're very collaborative. We really want to understand like a holistic point of view, you know, both within our company and our customers to say, uh, how can we provide a better experience, not only for the chef who's plating the food, but for the diner, as well as, you know, this higher level vision of, of being a, you know, we like to, of being sustainable. We like to say, you know, saving the world one plate at a time. <laughs> it, like well, to your point, you know, you, you, it, it, when you multiply it, you know, it makes sense. And then culturally we really thought, so, you know, my history at Nito, I was a first time founder and we didn't put very much thought to the culture. And so then it just happened. And I often struggled with having, having employees be really happy there. I mean, often they really thought that the problem itself was a great hard challenge. And so they were intellectually interested, but culturally we just didn't have a place where people really loved being frankly. And so with Dishcraft, it was a do-over for me. It was a chance to be very intentional about how we set up the company. And so we started with the values. We posted them, you know, on the wall. First thing, when someone came in, we, incorporated it into our interview process of asking people, you know, please share with us how you live one of these values in your personal life or your prior work life. And so we really had set it up because we believe that if you're really happy at work where you're spending most of your time, that we will be more successful, you know, financially, but holistically too. And so I think that's been a really important shift for me as a leader. So rather than just letting the culture evolve, I love that you said you wanted to be intentional. And I've, I've heard that phrase come up quite a bit. You know, it, it is really important to be intentional. And I, honestly, I love that you incorporate that into one of your interview questions when you're hiring. I, don't, I wonder how many people actually do that. Like pick the number one value or something that means a lot to you and, and just literally ask, when have you expressed that in your life? The other interview question that I love that not enough people ask and it trips people up is what is your life goal? Because if they don't have a life goal, it tells you something. <laughs> Again, if they're not 
like working towards something, not necessarily their work goal, but what do they want to be when they grow up? It's a, it, that one's been a good question. You know what I think is hard about asking that question, in my opinion, is what do you do with the answer? We had, so most recently for two years, I've been asking this question and I've been hoping for a single answer and I just got it. And so we, we hired the guy within a week. We, he, I asked him the question and he said, oh, he said, I grew up very impoverished and my parents have only ever rented their entire life. And so I really want to be able to buy them a house and make a difference in their life. And so that was so tangible for us. So, you know, now we've set out sort of a little roadmap for him that if he gets to certain goals, it's like, hey, here's where you're building the the hallway of, you know, your parents' new home. And here's now you're going to be on the second floor. And so it's it's a way that the company can take part in what an employee's bigger vision is to say, hey, working here helps you achieve something beyond just a day-to-day work, but it helps you create a path towards what you want in the future. You literally just connected his life goal to working for you. Yes. Yeah, it sounds so simple. Let's get in a little more into uh, Dishcraft Robotics because I I am fascinated by this and I've been on your website and I encourage everyone to go to your your website because you've got a it kind of walks you through. You can kind of see a little bit of the process. It's a dishcraft.com. You can kind of see a little bit of the process, you know, as it's happening. So where are you currently operating and tell us, you know, what, what problem are you primarily fixing right now? We're right now in the Bay area, although we have plans in 2022 to be in several other geographies. And so uh, for the next few years, we're staying just in the U.S. And then long-term, we have a vision of expanding. We are delivering a service every day where we drop off clean dishes and clean containers at you know food service establishments. And then we pick up the dirties at the same time. We bring those back to a centralized dishwashing hub and wash them there, rinse and repeat, do that every day. What we're solving for clients is... A good portion cannot find dishwashing labor because there's a massive labor shortage right now. In fact, we just read a report that there are a million job openings. The second thing we're solving is sustainability. Often, someone wants to reduce the amount of single-use disposables they're using. They just don't want to throw away these containers every day, but they don't have a cost-effective alternative. And so that's where Dishcraft comes in and says, hey, instead of using that compostable container, use our reusable container and provide the same great and even better diner experience in a cost-effective way. And we also sell, you know, I think a lot of safety is table stakes in the industry since covid and of course, that's. I'm sure that's on everyone's mind, and that's what I was thinking too. How do I even ab- approach that question? So, g- g- yeah, I'm sure you'll uh, touch on that here too. Yeah, and so if you think about a traditional dish room, people just get t- 
tired. It's a very monotonous, repetitive job. And so in the beginning of the day, you come to work and you're really fresh and motivated. But by the end of the day, eight hours into a shift, you know, you're overworked, you're tired. You're just not going to inspect a dish for cleanliness in the same way that you would on the first. And that's where robotics come in because they're super consistent. And so, you know, the 10,000th plate that we wash every single day is as clean as the first. And you simply can't get that kind of persistence. Yeah, it's, it's, really. it's reliability. It's reliability yeah. and it's consistency, right? And, and you, I guess you're, you're taking out the human error as much, well, essentially from, from the process. You know, the, no more I miss that spot, you know. Yeah, so we have we have 22 inspection points in our robots that inspect every plate from different angles. And because we're able to use AI and robotics, we're able to see dirt on the plate that the human eye can't pick up and then guarantee that it's clean afterwards. And so, so you know, we have, we have a, something that we show customers that's almost equivalent of hot or not, where it's, it's hey, is this plate clean? Or is it dirty? And then because the robot sees things that the human can't see, we, we outperform every single time. Yes, it sounds like you're actually providing a cleaner plate. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it just sounds like the sky's the limit. And I imagine you're dealing with issues like scaling, right? And it's expensive to set your operation up, but the the more stops you can make on the same street, right? If you have the restaurant next door and the restaurant next door and the restaurant next door, suddenly, you know, your carbon footprint's going down, your, your, your hours, your labor are going down, you're much more efficient. So, um, you know, how is that progressing? I mean, what's been the reception, you know, when you go out and try to sell this concept to the restaurant next door? Initially, initially we were a bit of a pain <laughs> to work with because we had the hard. <laughs> what do you mean? You're you're awesome. What do you mean? You you couldn't be a pain. So, but we've learned it, and so we've learned to be much more flexible. So, what we like to do is operate in a ten mile geography and a very dense radius. And when I say that we were a pain, it was because initially we were like, hey, we only work in this footprint, and we were encountering companies that said hey, we, we don't want a solution just for this one location. We're a global company and we want you to be able to handle, you know, every city in the U.S. that we are already present. And so we had a scale problem. We did not have necessarily a sales problem, but we definitely had a scale problem. And so what we have come up with for the product is a hub and spoke model where it's faster and easier to deploy and it's much, it's, modular that it's much easier to replicate one after the other after the other. So 2022 will be a very, very exciting time for us as we start to deploy this into other cities. We also uh, don't yet handle every operation. So when we go to customers, frankly, they would love it if we also did pots and pans. Like, can you solve everything where we don't have to do any dishwashing at all? But right now we're very much on front of the house wares. And so we know a sweet spot. And again, like I mentioned before, how we take things in steps, we know exactly how we're going to get, um, or we have the vision of how we'll get to be able to handle everything over time. So, you know, Matt Prindeville from, from upstream, correct? Correct. He had mentioned that there was this 
technology, and maybe he was referring to your company, I don't know. But the, the concept was you could bring even a, like a mobile dishwashing site to, let's say, a stadium. What, where are we from in the future foreseeing something like that? Instead of having 100,000 plastic cups being thrown away from a one-time beer use to a solution like you're, what you're providing for the front end of the tablewares. We're pretty close. That's what we're building our technology into containers that you can move around. And it, as easily, if you think about a truck, you can put the entire system on the back of a truck and bring it anywhere. You just need water. You need to hook up to water. But the system is there. There are other companies also tackling this. I think they're they're creating dishrooms in mobile trucks already, um, but they're using people to power it. And so it, the, it, the technology exists. It just needs to be created at scale and at a price point that works at scale. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we all love about California is they're always forward. It's either food forward or, you know, you name it, they're always kind of pushing the edge. And I, I feel like it makes sense you know, that, um, an operation like this would would start out there. And I'm, I'm, I, for one, I'm really, I'm really pulling for y'all. I I would love to see this thing scale all the way across. And I feel like I am a, I'm just really practical. You know, I'm not out there beating the drum, a bleeding heart every day, you know, but I do see problems. I do see issues. And I think there's some things that are easy and natural, that we should be fixing. And it's bothered me for years that every time you go get something to eat or you take it with you, you know, you just throw it away. And having um, spoken with, with Matt from Upstream, you know, really drove that point home even further that it, it's almost unnatural to be doing that. We should be reusing. So when we, when we talk about getting into restaurants and trying to fix that problem with restaurants. Do you see your solution as kind of fitting into that long-term fix for the restaurant space? Absolutely. Particularly on the, for the containers. So we, we want to reduce single use disposables in the U S there's a trillion and upstream has done a great report called reuse wins that says that, um, state, state states that tri- trillion number across the U.S. last year. And we have a great solution. The thing that we're trying to solve right now for restaurants is a reverse logistics problem. What does we that have, mean? That means that uh, you go to the restaurant and you take your takeout, but when are you returning to that same restaurant? Because you, we need to get that item back. Otherwise, there could be huge loss rates. We have focused initially on closed environments. If you think about corporate campuses or event centers, you know, where everything is in one location and the diner is there and they just return to a collection bin at the same place. I think there's a whole host of reuse companies that are now saying, hey, how do we work for restaurants and how do we get those items back? And they're talking to cities to say, let's set up reuse collection systems so that then there's a circular economy of returning these items. What that will involve is when you think about you seeing a 
garbage bin and a compost bin and a recycle bin, right next to it, there should be another bin called reuse. That's just what popped in my head. I, I was literally just imagining, you know, you, you've just had some takeout, you're walking down the street, just, you know, you're on the go and you just finish it, boom, and you, you do the right thing. But of course, people may not do the right thing. So the trick is, you know, how do you incentivize them to, to do that? But that's probably part of the process. Well, I think that you look at other countries and they're doing it a much better job of it. So India, it's built into the culture to have these tiffins and bring it back to the restaurant and they wash it and refill it for your lunch that day. And so that exists there. And then when you simply look at the numbers of reusables versus disposables in Europe versus the U.S. So I mentioned that one trillion number in the U.S. It's only two billion in Europe. So they do a much better job of reusing everything they have there. And so I think there's an opportunity here in the U.S. to change culture over time now that people are so concerned about the environment. And you know what better place to start than with school kids? Exactly. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, if you're talking about changing culture, if you had a system like that in place at the school systems, there the kids would, get, you know, they're already taking things back, you know, to the to the dishwashing area. But if it was kind of branded in such a way that they were putting it back into something that they're used to seeing, and then they go outside and they see it outside, suddenly, boom, it clicks, and now you've done it. You've you've crossed that bridge. Yep, there's a bunch of universities that have zero waste initiatives who have started a program like this. And what they'll do is they give a reusable container to the student. They charge them, say, $10. And then the student simply brings it to fill up this food and brings it back after um, it's used. And then the campus washes it. And they redo that every single day. And if they lose it, then they have to buy another container. And so that solves for the lost problem. And so where Dishcraft comes in is universities are saying to us, hey, we don't really have the room or to dry appropriately all these containers and labor is very, very difficult for us to find. And so Dishcraft can come in and solve all that problem at a really price competitive offering. You know, there's someone that else that I really need to introduce you to. He's the CEO, Bill Reader. He's the CEO of Campus Cooks. I think that is a, a fascinating little concept you guys could work on because they they are the in-house cooks and chefs inside all the sorority and fraternity systems. So oh, interesting. May not be the the scale. I, you know, I, I don't know, but you know, they're they're on the front lines as well. I think that's a that's a huge, you know. I love the. No, I love the idea. And I love it because, again, we like to start small and then grow. And so rather than we've talked to some universities and it would be 40,000 items per day at some of these universities immediately. And that's quite daunting if you're starting from zero. And so if you come in first through sororities, you start small and then you build trust and then you grow to handle the entire campus. Well, look at that. Um, we're doing networking live on a podcast. <laughs> See, that's that's how we roll here on Winning at Work. That's how we win, you know? We connect. We connect people. Um, that, that That's really cool. So 
We've touched on some of the trends. Are there other trends maybe that people just are not aware of kind of in this niche that you're working? And the major trends for us are safety, sustainability, and labor. So we're really trying to up-level the, the role. And so at Dishcraft, you know, when you have, when you have a dishwasher, they become what we call a dish robot operator. And there's definitely a path for them to them becoming a technician and for them becoming a field supervisor. And we've shown that we also have a hundred percent retention in the normal situation. You have a traditional dish room. The churn is every 42 days. There's very little diversity in the dish room. It, it's usually 75% male to female ratio. And in our case, we're uh, 53% women, which is, you know, really interesting that we're making. That is. We're, and we have 100% retention. So we're making real inroads there to improve morale and improve um, the ability for someone to grow their career. Yeah, it's a path forward. And kind of like you were saying before about, you know, learning more about what their life goals are and getting connected to them. And then they see a path forward and a path out because it's not just the manual process. I mean, there really is no advancement in a manual process. Okay. You get to manage the manual process, but, uh, you know, exactly. there's, there's just no career advancement. There is no career advancement. And I can tell you in and the other part of our business, which is more manufacturing, We've had so many calls uh, for automation and, you know, robotic technicians and engineers. So, you know, you're also kind of competing in that space. But at the same time, if your employees are getting those skills, I mean, that's fantastic because who would have thought that? You're getting that kind of a skill set, right? Washing dishes. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. Fascinating. You know, it's, it's a, it's technology, it's AI. It's, it's, that's why I said, Linda, I have just been wanting to talk to you for so long about this because I don't know, personally, maybe it's just me, but I'm kind of geeked out by it. And it, it's just, <laughs> it's just cool. Um, so everyone knows if they've been listening to the podcast, you know, my guest mentioned this, but we do have a pre podcast call, right? This is not our day jobs. You know, you're, you're running a business, I'm running, uh, you know, a food and beverage practice. So we, we, we make time out of our day to do this, but we, beforehand, we get on and have a little talk beforehand. And we were talking about a theme for you. And I thought it was, I thought it was kind of interesting that you said you embrace the power of no. And I, I just would like to, you to kind of unpack that a little bit as an entrepreneur. What does that mean and, and how are you instilling that in the company and how, and how is it working? It's a great question. I think that you need to embrace no's because you're going to hear it every day from a variety of sources. And particularly as an entrepreneur, you hear no all the time. You'll hear from customers, no, that's just not going to work. You know, I've never, I, I just can't imagine that, you know, like who would think that you could take dishes away from a place when their traditional method of doing things is keeping everything on site and from investors, you know, it's not going to appeal to everyone. 
And so you just have to learn to hear it and then take from it what you like. So early in my career, I really wanted to be an owner of a part owner of the company I was working for that I'd previously mentioned doing private label work designing. And they said, look, you're, you're fantastic at your job, but we're not going to make you a partner. And that's an opportunity because you, you already know in that location, they were never going to make me a partner. And so if I really wanted to have an ownership stake in a company, I needed to move on and find someone or somewhere else where I could achieve my dreams. And so I've just learned to accept the no's, try to learn from them, try to learn if it's a no, why is it no? Because sometimes there's a way to address that, particularly with customers. You say, oh yeah, I know it's a crazy idea to take your dishes off site, but here's why it works and here's why it's better for you. With investors, you know, it's like, what's the fit for us and who else do you know who may be a better fit? Or if it's, you know, one particular item that we hadn't addressed, we can always address it. And so I just go around and collect the nose. And I think for the team that I'm building, it allows them to break through walls. We like to say we're really agnostic to the solution at first. We want to hear all the ideas and and then you get to choose the best one. And so if you collect all these no's of why it won't work or why this will fail, then you can overcome them and you can come to that best solution. So it's literally like you're collecting all the no's is really market research, data, and you're building a platform almost to work from. Exactly. Yeah, that is so. Is that one of your values? Is that is that kind of baked into the ones you talked about before? We've never said that. I think it's it, it's an interesting thing that maybe I should say. Hey, let's collect nose. Our, our values. <laughs> that was just me, you know, but it, it sounded like you know you were doing that. It's it's just a philosophy that I personally believe because that's how I became an entrepreneur. Was I heard a no and I said, oh well, if that's if it's a no here, then how do I achieve what I want? So I think I think the founder set the foundation for everyone who they end up hiring. It becomes embedded in the culture. Our, in writing, our values are respect, communication, be bold, be flexible, be sustainable, be curious. Now maybe I'll say collect no's also. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, you heard it here first. We just have broken her values and we've had to add a new one. Well, I think your values are pretty well set. I, I'd like to learn a little bit more, really just about maybe your management and some of your leadership philosophy or, or style. I learned a lot from one of our board members. He was one of the founders of Netflix and the original CEO there. And he said one of the ways that he evaluated how well he was doing and Reed Hastings does as current CEO is how many decisions do they have to make a day? Because what that tells you is if you have trained all your leaders and everyone below you to make great decisions, then you yourself are you know that your company is moving really well without having to like micromanage every single choice. 
And so, you know, I actually measure how many times <laughs> across a few days do I have to come in and, and dive down in the, in the weeds. And so how that translates in an organization is we like to give context to people and then give everyone the leeway to get their job done. Like you give them enough autonomy and of course they make mistakes along the way, but you often find that they love it because they can have the freedom to do what they do and get it done in the path that they need to do it. So everyone will come up with a different solution. I may, you know, do, if you have A, B, C, D, E, I may do B first and ultimate, and then E to get to whatever my solution is. They may have a different set of letters that they achieve that thing, but either way you're getting the same result and with a happier staff. And so, you know, we give a lot of autonomy. We propose as many solutions as we can to choose the best. We like to be flexible because it's a startup and there's changes every day. I mean, no one expected the pandemic. And when that hit, we had to be a very flexible organization to say, okay, you know, what can we do to solve our customers' problems today, given that they're suffering as well? And I think we like to be really scrappy. We like to test, set a time limit to something, and then adjust with the learnings and go forward. And so I think that's just become the culture of Dishcraft, of trying a whole bunch of different things, seeing what works, and then adapting and taking that road, you know, so it's like winds around, but ultimately you're still getting to the solution that you want to get to. Explain the time limit. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, because I think you can't let something go too long. So I think if you want to try something, you say, okay, you know, I have an assumption that this one thing will work. Let's try it. Try you know, I'll, I'll give you a marketing example is when you're reaching out to a customer, you may have a couple of different messages and you can say, let's just try these things with a certain number of people for two weeks and then see if this idea really landed and if we got the results. And if not, how do we course correct to try to get the results that we're really trying to achieve? Act, learn, adjust. Got it. I live by that. Yeah, you seem like very much of a doer, so that would make sense. Let's just go, let's try it, analyze it, and then move on. You said something kind of interesting, though, about monitoring how many times you as the leader or other leaders have to make decisions or solve for problems, and you've been kind of tracking that. For someone who's going to take that advice and try it, what are do you have any... Uh, I don't know, advice or, or when do you know you're on the right track? Obviously if you're getting, I, don't, I guess having some is good. Maybe none could be scary. Like no one has any questions. So where's the happy medium in there? So where it really started is I found that every time I went on vacation, there would be a crisis at work and they would call me and my vacation was, was just me on the phone trying to figure out something. That's not a great experience for my husband. And so what I realized is people were relying on me to make the final call on everything. Now, as CEO, of course, you're going to have to make these very large strategic decisions. But if they are, if your team is asking you to weigh in on the minutia, then they're not empowered to do what's best for the company. And so what I say to leaders is, look, what would you do in my position? 
and then propose that. And if it doesn't work, we can course correct. So that empowers people to say, okay, you know, I, as the hiring manager, for example, have the ultimate say on who I'm going to build for the team. I'm getting feedback from all the other leaders that impact this hire, but ultimately it is my decision who I'm going to hire. And then if that person fails, they're, the leader is accountable for that failure and either has to move the person out or they themselves you know, may end up being moved out of the org. And so I think it's that kind of thing of saying, look, you're, you can make your decisions, build your team, design what you want within a budget, within certain guardrails, but leaving it up to them to, they know their job better than I do. And so I should not be making every final say. I mean, it's just, uh, it would be impractical and not scalable as an organization. Yeah. And not fun for your husband who's trying to take y'all out to dinner or do something. And, you know, you're having to go, wait, wait, I have to solve this. I have to solve this. You know, and he's rolling his eyes like, hey, where's, your, you know, a vacation means you're supposed to unplug but it's also, I guess, a good litmus test of can the business run on its own? And quite frankly, this is, I, I've mentioned Bill Reeder now twice. Bill, if you're listening, um, I'm thinking back to a conversation we had, and that's you really have to work to replace yourself. Exactly. You don't want the, the in the early stages, you only have a few people. And so, of course, you're so critical. And I like to think that I'm critical because I am setting the culture and, of the organization, but, but I don't want to be so critical that if there's a bus accident, that the company doesn't have a life after me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's easier said than done trying to replace yourself. You really, it, it's a labor of love and it, it takes quite a long time to do it. And maybe, maybe that leads us into an, another one of our discussions that we wanted to talk about. And that is, you know, Hiring, and you've already mentioned one of your little um, your interview questions, which I think is great. Do you have any other maybe ideas around our talent discussion of how you could help a hiring leader? We're pretty transparent at Dishcraft, and we like to give context. So if there's a problem, we like to give feedback immediately because otherwise we had uh, early on run into things where people were not as open. They were afraid of, you know, hurting someone's feelings and then problems would fester or reactions were really strong and that's not good for anyone or any fun. So we're also pretty open about our statistics. So diversity was important to us. And so we have started to share how are we doing on that path? And if there's issues, then we try to address it. And, you know, so on the great side. Like we outperform in terms of diversity today compared to another um, company at our stage. However, we have a, we have a survey that in order to, to know that we do that, we, we track like ESAT scores. And so we have a survey that goes out every month. And I realized only 50% were of our folks were participating in the survey. And so that doesn't truly give you an eyesight into the, how the entire organization feels. And so that was a weakness of ours that we then started to address by encouraging everyone to participate. So you have to acknowledge where you're making mistakes and, and then trying to figure out ways to correct that. Um, during the interview process, we're very transparent about what it's like to work at the company. And I've said to 
interviewees, I said, look, you can contact anyone from the company because we want you to know that what you're experiencing here is what it's like every day. And so don't just take our word for it, but you can randomly, you know, contact someone from LinkedIn that works here and they are given permission to say, oh yeah, this is really what it's like. Because what we're trying to avoid is this experience where someone joins one day and they're like, oh, this isn't what I thought the company was going to be like. And then they're going to quickly look for somewhere else to work. We want them to know from day one what it's like. We do a bunch of other things. Like we do personal touches. When someone comes to Dishcraft, they're given a credit that they can spend on the organization. And so what that tells us is, you know, what kinds of things do they like? What are their hobbies? How are they going to engage with other people? We also create a buddy system so that they work with people from other departments or at least cross-culturally can um, get to know other workers, which, you know, is pretty important given most people are working from home and they don't actually have a lot of exposure to the other departments right next to each other or over lunch the way they did when they were working in an office. Um, I think we just, you know, we really care about people and we put people first. And I think that helps build a great culture that people want to stay so those that's, are, that's my two cents. <laughs> I, I love it. And you brought two things up that I know everyone's listening and they're going to, they're going to expect me to follow up on this. So you do a monthly ESAT. It's a survey. It's yeah. a, like a happiness score. And each month they, we ask three different questions. It only takes two minutes to fill out. They can fill in information if they want or questions or comments but it gives us a guide of, you know, do you, do you feel you have enough ownership is, do you think that leaders are creating a path for you? How well do you think the company is doing? So, uh, how, happy, how happy are you at work? How likely are you to stay here in this role? <laughs> and that's, I was just thinking though, wow, monthly, that's a, that's, that's a big, that's a big commitment to ask that every month. And is it anonymous? Yeah, it's anonymous. It's actually, we use Gusto, which is a great platform and it's powered by Gusto. It only takes two minutes. They have a preset list of questions, but you can edit those questions. If you have a particular topic that you want to know how well you're doing. And it's really helpful because then you can you can look at what were my results in 2020 and what are my results now in 2021 and how have I improved as an organization? I mean, but but how quickly do you react to that score? Like because particularly if it's anonymous and you have some people that maybe aren't happy, well, you don't really know where to go, do you? You can tell certain things from it and you can create a long-term plan. We heard, I'm trying to think of a good example. We, I mean, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but it's kind of interesting. No one has mentioned this before. And I think you're, you're doing something perhaps maybe a little different. So that's why I just want to spend a little bit of time and make sure we unpack it. I don't think you were planning on doing this. That's why I put you on the spot, but sure. No, we're a look, we're a tiny company. We're about 51 employees right now. 
And there was a time where a few people were very loudly in the, in the survey saying that we had <laughs> a problem, you know, you kind of knew smart. what it was, right? You, you kind of knew who they were is what you're saying. No, I didn't know who, no, I actually did. I still to this day don't know who it was, okay. but I knew that, I knew that there was a, I knew that there was a, I could tell that there was a concern because of COVID, uh, are sales going to just totally drop off? And is this company stable enough that we'll survive? Because the immediate impact was, hey, we went, we went from having uh, a very rosy picture to all of a sudden customers were pausing us. And so that that ended up coming out in the in the ESET survey. Um, and so then very it was human, like, very natural, very right. natural. And so then it's a chance that I have a week. Uh, we have a weekly state of the company meeting, which different leaders will talk at uh, different topics. But once I realized that that was a concern, then I was able at this next state of the company meeting to say, "Look, it is a, acknowledge it is a very scary place, and yes, we're paused, and so the revenue is not what we thought." However, here is exactly what we are going to do to address it. And here are all the unknowns. And so here's the things that we still have to do research on, on how we're going to come over on the other side. So it's pretty valuable to know what are the concerns from your folks and then just give them context around what they're worried about. But you close the loop. Now I understand how you're doing it because I had so many questions about that and how you would implement it and how you would communicate back. You're doing weekly state of the company meetings. So it makes perfect sense. You're getting this information once a month. You go back and look at some trends and then here's our opportunity to address things. So really you're kind of taking the pressure out of the valve before, you know, it, it blows up. Exactly. You just need to, again, be transparent, listen and then challenge and resolve. Well, that's great. I, like I said, I've learned a lot and I'm fasc fascinated by this industry. I love some of the different techniques and kind of management strategies that you're using. We're definitely going to have to have you back on to talk about, you know, how great 2022 will be, I think you've got some pretty big plans and I'm, I'm pulling for you to see how that expands out, per, you know, potentially out from, from the Bay Area. Before we go, Linda, uh, just a few more quick questions. Do you have any particular like critical hiring need that you'd like maybe someone to send a resume over? We would love a head of hub operations because we're going to be expanding aggressively and so there's a real opportunity to get involved in management at the hub level and as well as logistics. And that is posted on our website. So that's the most critical hire right now. And we have an opening for a software engineer. We have an opening for a head of, well, let me let you can edit that part out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. I'll edit, so 51, I'll edit. So it sounds like you've got a couple positions open. You've got you have you have a head of head of hub, which is like an operational role, and then you have a role in IT, software, yeah, software engineering. So if yeah, it's software engineering, if it's a robotics engineer or software engineer, that'd be fantastic. I think most of the Bay Area is, is a it's a it's a very hot market right now. 
And what's the best way for you, for people to connect with you on the socials? I know you're on LinkedIn and everyone's going to have a link to your LinkedIn profile. Are there other ways they can connect with you or is that the best one? Sure. There's, they can connect to me through LinkedIn. I have a website called Linda at Robo, Linda.com. And so people can also email me there. I, most of my social feeds also follow that Robo Linda title handle. And so you can just search and you would find me on Twitter and Facebook and others. All the other stuff that's out there. So pretty much it's it's just Linda at Robo.com. Linda at RoboLinda.com. R-O-B-O-L-I-N-D-A.com. Linda at RoboLinda.com. And that has a link to all my socials there too. Okay, great. That's where we will direct people outside of LinkedIn. This has been fantastic. And I'm really excited to see the growth in this space. It is so, so needed and just i'm really excited for you guys thank you it's gonna be a great year i'm really i'm really psyched and and it was really such a pleasure talking to you and and hey you created networking opportunities for me yeah and bill bill reader you know um that's not a normal thing we do you know live on the podcast but it just seemed kind of obvious there to kind of tie you guys together and um you know kind of see how this whole food and beverage space just kind of connects together works together in that one common area of good of you know feeding people making people happy and of course doing it in a sustainable way linda thank you so much for joining me today on winning at work oh thank you it's been my pleasure